Hello and welcome to Books and Badgers. This is season one and we are in episode four. This is the very exciting review episode of Redwall. So there's an, uh, a great panel of contributors here with me today. Uh, and we're going to talk through all the things that we liked, didn't like about Redwall. We're going to do all kinds of uh, ratings for the book. We're going to talk about our favorite villains, our favorite heroes. We've got lots to cover today, so we're just going to jump right into it. As always, I'm Colin, and with me I have William. William, how are you doing? Hey. Um, I am surviving. Uh, my life has been chaos recently. Um, I'm having a mini existential crisis career wise. My kid has his first t-ball game that I'm head coaching for some reason this Saturday. Oh, wow. Um, we had a water pipe burst at the house two days ago and I've got a book coming out in two weeks. So like, oh my goodness, my life. I am so excited to just sit here for an hour and just vibe with my friends and talk about Redwall. You can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Well, I'm glad that you got to spend some time with us to talk about this book. Thanks for thanks for making that time. Uh, also you. with me, I yeah, for sure. Uh, also with me, I have Trevor. Hey, how's it going, Trevor? Maybe it is the week of the existential crisis, but I feel that in my bones for sure. It's good to sit at a table and be able to talk about Redwall because the rest of life does feel like a dumpster fire sometimes. Yeah, sometimes there's there's a dump and there's a fire for sure. Uh, and then lastly, we've got Tiff. Tiff, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I, I, you know, wish I could add some positivity to the room, but, um, well, no, I do have some positivity. So, um, you guys have been very graciously patient with me as, um, I haven't been responding to discord messages because I've been dealing with a lot of health issues lately. Um, but the silver lining is that I believe it's celiac, um, or gluten intolerance, something in that vein, um, something autoimmune that is fixed by just not eating gluten anymore. Um, so I am, um, hopefully on my way to recovery, I am feeling better, um, now just not completely recovered. So that is, that is nice to be feeling a little bit better the last few days. Yeah, so sorry to hear that. And hopefully that is the the solution is that you can just kind of stay away from gluten and start feeling better. But again, thank yeah. you so much for making the time to to go through this review episode because um, it's great that you guys are here. We've got lots of thoughts about Redwall. This is the, the review of Redwall, book one in the Redwall series. Um, we have episodes two, uh, one, two, and three, and those uh, are where we cover books one, two, and three within Redwall, and that's with myself and Trevor. So if you haven't listened to those, go ahead and check those out. But uh, we all know why you're here. You want to know what we like about this. You want to know what we don't like about it. You want to hear those ratings. So let's jump into it. All right. So starting off, we're going to talk about what we liked about uh, about this first book. So uh, what was one of the best parts of the book? Um, William, I'm going to throw it over to you to get us started. Okay. So one of my favorite things about this book, and it's actually a lot of fun, uh, a lot of favorite things about this book. I really liked all of the siege tactics that Clooney used and reading through those and seeing all of the fun ways that those got thwarted. 
uh, I think Jake's did a really good job of setting up plans that were legitimately good plans for a tower assault uh, with the siege towers, with the tunneling, with the plank going from a branch across the thing. There were multiple times in the book that I thought that, ignoring the fact that we still had half of the book to go, but there were multiple times in the book that I thought, okay, Clooney could pull this off. This is a good plan. This this is a wily adversary pulling out every trick they can come up with. And then when Jake's turns the tables on them, it's always with something that's equally as clever or equally as fun. Um, and we'll we'll talk about a number of these as we go. But flooding a uh, tunnel full of boiling hot water and and melting your adversaries to death things like that are just so chaotic and so fun and so well executed it 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 was i don't know it was it was brilliant i i enjoyed every single assault on the tower i think on the abbey i think uh and and i thought it was i thought it was a lot of very creative uh uh, attack counterattack fane and parry I really got to agree with you. I think that Clooney is, I I love how smart he is. I think he's so smart and I think his tactics are so cool. Um, And he really has so much bad luck, you know? Well, I mean, I guess you can't necessarily call it bad luck because he, the way that he runs his army um, is very fear-based and I don't think that's, you know, typically very successful, but as far as his tactics go, um, they're really awesome. And some of his tactics, you know, he, he definitely falls into some bad luck, but otherwise they would have been so cool. I like what you bring up about Clooney's style of leadership being very much based in fear, because I think that this book is trying to grapple with, you know, these, kind of very different ideas of what leadership looks like and how you gather people around you. So Clooney, of course, being very fear-based and Matthias being very much more charismatic, very much more empathetic, I think, which creates a stronger bond between him and the other creatures of Moss Flower. Um, it's a really good point. Yeah, I agree. I, I uh, kind of to William's point, I love the the kind of uh, jump in the chapters of we see Matthias on his journey and then we jump over to the siege that's happening um, on Redwall and his devices are really clever what he comes up with in order to try to get into the wall and we see how his plans are always foiled. They're they're really great and engaging stories. It's definitely one of the highlights and things I remember the most about um, reading that first book. What would you say is actually your favorite ploy from Clooney, William? This is jumping a little bit ahead to something that we'll talk about a little bit later, or maybe it sets the stage well for us now. I think my favorite of Clooney's ploys is using the foxes and understanding that they're Mm -hmm. acting as double agents and effectively turning them into triple agents. I know that they're stealing information from me and sneaking this information to Redwall. So I'm going to sneak them bad information to sneak to Redwall, to sneak for me, to bop, 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 bop. Once he picked up on the foxes doing that, and I think the foxes are really fun part of this story by themselves. But then you add to that the fact that Clooney finds a way to one-up them and finds a way to outsmart these, these species that are supposedly very crafty and very good at this stuff. I think it did 
a lot of double duty with elevating Clooney as a villain. I think it did a good job of making the threat to Redwall very real. And it resulted in one of the craziest things in this entire book with, uh, uh, what is his name? Cheese thief? No, cheese thief is the rat. Uh, chicken hound. Chicken, chicken hound having to crawl through his dead mother's corpse to escape a grave. Mm. That is one of the most metal, like, come at me as a horror fan moments. I think we get in this entire series. Um, and just, just all, I, I don't know, all of it working together makes the terror of Clooney that much more poignant uh, and, and makes the stakes in this world a lot more real. I, I just, I loved that whole um whole story beat it's really interesting how much you love it and how much i think colin hates sila um, <laughs> yeah we gotta talk about that in the dislikes but yeah i've got <laughs> i've got some counterpoints to you william okay so so i like having uh chicken hound chicken foot darn it i'm so bad with his name chicken, chicken, chicken hound chicken hound you chicken go. hound I like having Chicken Hound and Sela be our introduction to the foxes because immediately we recognize that there is something here that is crafty and sneaky and could like add a whole new element to this thing. But then in like the very next sentence, as we kind of get an admiration for them, that admiration is undercut with, but these two are utterly incompetent. Chicken Hound is very bad at sneaking around. Sela is very bad at sneaking around. They think they're great but they are awful at this but i think it's cool to have that little uh that little seed of an idea planted in our heads what if they weren't incompetent what if they were actually good at playing this double agent and then later on in the series when actually formidable foxes show up if you're a reader that's been here through the whole series you remember chicken head you remember sila it's like, oh crap, these foxes can actually go mess some stuff up now because these these new foxes that are coming up later, they're not morons. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's where my criticism comes in. I don't think that Sela's a moron though. Or uh, morons overselling it. I, I I should say I should say um pri- overly prideful or something. I don't I don't know. It's, it's their own vanity that gets in their way a lot of the times. Okay, so I hear those criticisms of Chicken, chicken Hound and Sela kind of being restricted to like a stereotype. Um, I, I think that might play into um, a, a little bit of what I was talking about with, with like ser- setting this stereotype of a character up for future success. Um, Chicken Hound never really shows any connection to Sela. So when she dies, it didn't strike me as odd that he just kind of bebopped along, um, especially with uh, with a profession where they're double dealing all the time and being being very secretive and dealing with secrets. They've probably encountered death a lot, a lot more than the Redwall mice or anybody else have. So him just kind of like moving on from death and just being so woefully... Um, uh, desensitized to everything uh, spoke to his character for me a little bit, but I can see your side of the coin too, where that wouldn't be working for you. I don't know, Tiffany. Yeah. So my, the way that I resolved both of the things that you guys are saying, you know, that um, I, I would, I was satisfied by it. Um, let me start over the way that I 
uh, sort of resolved all of that is I truly see Clooney as the smartest character in this book. I think he is incredibly smart. And I think some of the things that he does are smarter than anything else that any other character does in the book. And so I do see Sila as being a really smart character. And I think that she does have a ton of potential um, to do some really cool things, um, but that we just unfortunately didn't get to see it in this book because her, the first, you know, interaction that we see her have is with Clooney, who happens to, in my opinion, be the smartest character in the book. Um, and so I, I kind of see her as fairly smart, but unfortunately, you know, she just met her match. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. Cause um, in my own criticism, I guess one of the things I like the most about Clooney and why I think he's one of the best characters in this book has to do with his cleverness. And that's really to the cost of Sela's character development. So I, I, as I mentioned before, it may just be that I, I don't know the foxes enough in this world to really make a good opinion. And to me, this just seemed like a really bad introduction to them. Um, I'm very conflicted about this. I talked about my conflict about it when we had our, our spoiler discussion. Um, so I'm okay with being, uh, you know, maybe not as um, thorough in my breakdown of Sela as a character, um, but it's, it's something that I did struggle with in, in this first book. I will say just as a little bit more dimension to this conversation about Sela, I think that we have to understand that this is fundamentally a middle grade book <laughs> or uh, at the very least, you know, kind of the, the book that's meant for maybe some older children. So the dimension of characterization, I think has to be understood through that lens, you know, um, we still need to kind of make them identifiable and relatable to children. And so some of that dimension that we might expect from a bigger, more mature fantasy uh, is just not necessarily going to make it into a lot of these characters through the whole series. So some of what I see as a criticism about Sila, whether or not she needs a redemption arc, I don't, I'm not entirely sure. I think the circumstances of her death are tragic enough. And as we'll come to see, Chicken Hound is kind of one of the most defining villains of the whole series. Um, and so I, I feel like I'm okay with the lack of dimension for some of these secondary characters because that's not really the entire point of the adventure. The bigger, yeah. broader themes are still intact regardless of whether or not a character like Sila is the most, you know, multi-dimensional character um, that we can come across. Oh, I was just going to add that I know that Jake's has said that he purposefully, um, you know, made things pretty black and white knowing his audience. Um, that's something very intentional that he did, that he knew that kids responded um, well to the black and white, good and bad. Um, and so that's something that he's done purposefully in, to his characters. Yeah, definitely. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I don't like that answer, but I think it's the right one. So I think that you're, you guys are totally spot on with that. I think it's it's totally okay to have criticisms of a book like this, especially as we know that the field of children's fiction has evolved um, in the 30 
odd years, almost 40 years that, um, you know, this book has existed. So it, it stands as a reasoned criticism to ask for more dimension from these stories. But I also think we kind of have to understand the point and purpose of what Jake's was trying to do. And in that sense, I'm, I feel much more satisfied with Sela and chicken hound, especially as I know what happens further down the line that incorporates some of these characters. Yeah, definitely. And that plays really into something that, um, that I want to talk about, but I know that Tiff wants to talk about it too, as one of the best part of the books. And that's the setting. I think that the setting is, is great. And Tiff, I'll let you kind of talk, share your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I, you know, my favorite character in the book is the Abbey. I fell in love with the Abbey. I want to live at the Abbey. Um, and my favorite part of the book is um, at the beginning of every Abbey chapter, he sets the scene with the weather that day, um, you know, usually talks about how the sun looks reflecting off of the pond that day. Um, I I just love it. I, I think it's very nostalgic and um, it's a very romanticized way of living. Um, and so I that's by far my favorite part of the book um, is just dreaming about living at the Abbey and, um, you know, thinking about what it's like in peaceful times. Um, and so one thing that I actually wanted to ask you guys about is um, one of my favorite sort of topics of conversation when I meet new people is uh, aphantasia. So I, I don't even know how scientific that term is, but I know on, um, social media, it was going around, you know, maybe a year or two ago, people talking about aphantasia. And um, the idea is um, some people can see when they're reading um, something or they hear a description of something, they see an image in their mind. They see a scene, they see an object. Whereas with aphantasia, um, there's no image, you know, it's just words to you. Um, And so for me, I know when I'm reading this book, I imagine I, in fact, I, I slow down and make sure to read the beginning of the chapter that really sets the scene. I read those really slowly and really, really paint a picture in my mind of what it looks like. And that's just a huge part of my experience with the book is just imagining not only the scenes, but, um, you know, tasting the candied chestnuts and the food that they prepare and feeling the sunlight, you know, coming down on me and imagining the tools that they make, you know, and and imagining what those would look like. Um, And so I'm curious, do you guys have that same experience where you can see, you know, maybe even feel some of what's going on from Jake's uh, descriptions? I think so. You're not the first person I've met that has talked about this aphantasia. Again, I'm I'm not sure that I've run into that term before, but I feel like it does perfectly describe some of the experiences that I've come across with some of my other, you know, reading friends or sometimes my students who have a very difficult time trying to construct that kind of like mental world. I think for me, one of the things that I always loved about these books is that I have very strong sensory um, memories of of the book and the sense of space and the sense of adventure. I've never really struggled all that much 
to envision these characters as they interact with one another. And I think that that is really a strength of Jake's kind of sensory language. He builds whole scenes that I think are rooted in the things that we kind of do know and can can depict. So I'm not sure how others with aphantasia might react to a book like Redwall, but I do think that for me anyway, it's very easy using his language as a launching point for my own imagination to fill out the whole sense of a scene that I can then replay in my head and kind of live vicariously through. Um, I both appreciate so much of how Jake's does describe the, the Abbey and how he, um, we see a lot of different aspects of the Abbey, like, um, the cult of, uh, sorry, the court of Bullspera is like a good example of how we get one dimension, the Abbey, but then we're kind of transported to a different dimension in a way. And we get to see a whole, whole different, um, group of animals in, in the Abbey. So that is something that I really do love about this book, but I struggle so much with how Jake's establishes scale in this, that it almost takes me out of the setting. Um, we've talked about this before, but the initial introduction of Clooney on the horse and the cart and the ruins and um, trying to wrap my head around how are these mice living within this abbey and they're able to function and open doors. But at the same time, like we don't really get a good size of the whole size of the abbey. And we understand that there's full grown trees, but then there's also um, there's, I don't know, like, livestock that they're able to interact with. I have a really hard time with the scale. So I'm trying to balance in my mind, like how to love this world that Jake's has kind of written us in, but then also reject the, the scale that he introduces at parts that take you out of it. That's so funny, Colin. Cause I have, I I'm totally able to separate those two things because I have all the same gripes as you do about the sense of scale. And I know that we're going to, we're planning on diving into that um, because that was very distracting for me. Um, Yeah. Very distracting. And it did often, yeah, make it hard to, to, to imagine things. Um, But I guess the sensory experience of it, you know, talking about the weather and, and the sun shining down and um, the food that they were eating, I was able to appreciate that without getting distracted by the sense of scale. Um, but absolutely, I got so distracted by thinking about, you know, wait, this, how tall is this tree that can go up to the top of the abbey wall? But yet, you know, it's the branches. So is the abbey also really tall or is the, are the trees yeah. small? So it was all very confusing. <laughs> And I, and I think it gets better as the book goes along. Um, it's like the very introduction of it, the scale is just all over the place. Um, the introduction of Clooney and the horse, as I mentioned, but then it seems like as we progress, it's like Jake's kind of learns how to like write the scale better and how to size things down. And so it's definitely less of a gripe that I have in like, um, in part three or book three, um, of this book, but yeah, it's, it's hard to, I wish I could just like, break it out in my mind but i actually totally disagree i don't think that he gets better throughout the book i know that he has said he's recognized that it is not it's a weakness of the first book and he um 
he definitely like he never references humans or anything in the later books um and so he definitely i know in the later books gets better at it but towards the end of the book like the siege tower is supposedly made out of parts of the cart and that's pretty late in the book and and so to me i was trying to understand it so they've got this tower that is as tall as the what the red wall abbey walls and it's made out of this cart that is sort of human sized maybe um but it and so to me i was i still continued to be super confused throughout the entire book um because they referenced the cart again later in the book they used um they used the church picket fence they took one of the pickets and used that as a tool at one point and they made it sound like it took several rats to carry this picket so i'm like okay is this a human sized picket because if it were a mouse sized picket it wouldn't take multiple rats to carry it and then the way they used it made it sound like it was really big but this the way that they used it didn't really make sense for the picket to be human sized or to be mouse sized it was almost like an in-between size so i i actually felt confused throughout the entire book it wasn't just at the beginning yeah yeah you bring up a really good point because Clooney also arms himself with a picket in the fight doesn't he so that doesn't make sense that they're using the same pickets as like a ballista but then also he's using it as a sword like that seems kind of strange now that I'm thinking about it you bring up a really good point Tiff and and um yeah okay can I can I jump in and nerd out a lot here please yeah let's get into the um, scale discussion because okay. I, <laughs> I we, think it's we're just diving straight in yeah I, I fully expect Trevor to piggyback on this um, with us being like the big, the big, like in into the the creating side of the lit world thing. Um, I think in so many ways in this book, um, Jake's is suffering from first book syndrome or new author syndrome. Um, and you you see it a lot if you go back and you read anybody's bibliography straight through. Um, when people are writing their first books um, or writing very early on in the career, there are some skills that you just don't have yet. Um, even if you go through and you make a really good outline, you're going to get to points of the story where you realize that outline doesn't quite connect the way that you wanted it to. And part of the skill set you build up as a writer is finding ways to bridge those gaps. Um, you've got things that sound really cool in concept and you really want to work into the story that need to be left on the cutting room floor because they don't quite fit with any, everything else you're building. But you're so, um, you're so attached to these things that you leave them in anyhow. You don't know how to kill your darlings yet, uh, as the saying goes. I think in a lot of ways, I give Jake's passes on this book for things like the scaling because I know that it's one of his first books and I know that he gets so much better at it later on. Um, Trevor, something I was planning to battle you on today is the end of act one where uh, Matthias is on his way back to the Abbey and he just straight up goes to sleep. Um, and, and in your breakdown of episode one or of act one, you were very forgiving of Jake's for this. It's the warrior's respite. He went out on his first big adventure and now he's tired. I think Jake's wrote himself into a corner. He couldn't have Matthias back at the Abbey quite yet. He needed something to stall him. So we just let him go to sleep for a minute. Um, and and I, I feel okay saying all these things and it's not meant to be an attack on Jake's or anything. Like seriously, 
everybody does this. Go back and read any first, any author's first books. Um, but I, I feel okay saying this because I know how much better he gets at it later on. Like just the jump from this to Moss Flower is insane. Uh, so we're, we're picking a couple of these things apart and I think we're going to keep picking them apart throughout this episode. And I think that they're fair things to pick apart, but also I, I want to give him a lot more grace than, um, that, I don't know, maybe some of the harsher critics would, cause I, I kind of know where he's coming from here. I mean, I, I agree with you. This is definitely first book syndrome. And, uh, to your point, I probably went a little too hard to defend Jake's for some of these, (laughs) you know, like kind of chapter transitions. I think too, we have to remember the origins of this story outside of just being a book because the origins of, of Redwall, I think comes from an oral tradition of storytelling. Jake's did not write this book in it like as its origins he really just told stories to uh blind kids at a a school for the blind in england where he resided so a lot of the book has an origin as just the kind of story that he would tell these kids and i think that in the the translation process of taking it from that oral storytelling into a book, there's just some jank. There, there's some some bits that I, I don't think he really ever gave a whole lot of thought to because it was never intended to be this big, long series. It was just a story for fun. And when you think of it as a story for fun for kids, I think it's a lot more, it's a lot easier to forgive a lot of the nonsense about scaling and the uh, concepts of, you know, like, is this a human world? Is it not? Is Clooney from Portugal? <laughs> Where oh, even gosh. is Moss Flower? Right. And I think that um, he does get a lot better at his storytelling when the, the effort is made to create a book to really craft a text itself as opposed to what I feel is just a a string of, of yarns that have just kind of been sutured together into this story for Redwall. Somebody's got to follow up with something. I think that we need to move on to uh, what Colin and Trevor like their, their favorite things about the book. My favorite thing about this book is Asmodeus, just straight up. I think that the inclusion of this like weird secondary bad guy who is absolutely just the dragon that is like hoarding the treasure that the hero is trying to find. Like I love this trope. And Asmodeus is such a sinister force through the book. And I think for me, my favorite moment, the moment that I use to sell this book to other people is the fight between Matthias and Asmodeus toward the end. I loved that part so much that it 
just burned itself in my brain. And it is the go-to. Anytime I see a serpent and a sword and a hero, I it, I just flash back to Asmodeus every time. Yeah, I think, uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier, my, my favorite is um, the sieges, similar to what William had said. Um, I think that those are really fun and exciting to see, like, how's the, what's the plan and how it's the plan going to fail uh, against the Abbey. Um, I, anytime that we're just seeing the Abbey under attack, I think is, like, the most engaging part of the story, rather than, like, Matthias's hero journey. I, I really like the what's going on there for most of the book. Um, but I also like the court of King Bullsparrow. I think that that whole thing is kind of fun. And Matthias gets stuck in this spot where he doesn't really know how to get out of it. And it's just complete madness. And um, that's one of the things that I remember most about the first book. And so rereading it or revisiting it, it, it just kind of brought me back to like, oh, yeah, this is such a fun time. And it's just craziness. And the, the all the sparrows are just absolutely nuts. And they all want candy chestnuts. Like, you know, it's just... That's probably one of my favorite parts of the book. I have to agree that the sparrows are definitely um, one of the most memorable parts of the books for me. I I love them so much. They're so funny and they're hard to understand. It takes like three readings to try to figure out what they're trying to say. And um, oh gosh, yeah, I love them so much. And I'm sad that they don't show up, um, I think at all in the other books. I think birds are so infrequent in this whole series and I was actually shocked when I started reading Mossflower and found a bird. I was like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> Let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll jump right into what our favorite or strongest themes were. Uh, so let's do that break. All right. And now that we're back, uh, let's start off talking about what were some of our favorite themes. Uh, and to get us started, let's toss it over to Trevor. Themes in this book. I really love the concept of leadership, kind of like we were talking about earlier. What makes for good and what makes for evil? Because I think that this book posits that anyone really can be a hero. It's not about having the right sword. It's not about having the right destiny so much as it is about a consistency of character. And we see in Matthias a consistency in his character of choosing the hard path to do the right thing. And we see on the opposite side of the spectrum, Clooney, who consistently makes the wrong decisions because it it might mean personal wealth for him in whatever context that is. It, it means an easier life or an easier path for him. And I think that that, that dialogue, that, that friction is just one of the things that I find most utopian in this whole story. The, the idea that we can make the right decisions for the right reasons. And that is what good is. It is a consistency of action and character. I have got to disagree. <laughs> I, I just do not find Matthias's hero journey very satisfying. Um, I, 
I think I think there is a ton of destiny involved. You know, Martin literally taught, you know, who is long dead, um, literally talks to him and gives him strength. And, you know, he has a little bit of advantage of knowing how some things are going to end. You know, he kind of he he kind of assumes that he's going to survive because he is because he's under, you know, the um, the protection of Martin and it's his destiny. Um, and so I think that he makes some mistakes like um, you guys actually talked about it in episode two where he um, Matthias. Um, he dropped Warbeak and um kind of you know let warbeak think that he might um he, he holds warbeak's life in his hands um and this ends up becoming a um a moment where they bond where warbeak you know gains some respect for um matthias and um they they actually become closer after it but i just think that was a huge risk and there was absolutely no um guarantee that that was going to work and then matthias you know and so i think that there you know you can make the argument which which i think you guys made that um matthias is really intuitive about the different um types of animals and and he just really quickly picks up on you know what they value and he uses that to his advantage um and i think that 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 there definitely is an aspect of that but um where it really ended up coming to a head for me is later in the book when um the shrews at first aren't aren't going to support him on the way to asmodeus and then in the middle of the night they show up and um, Matthias, you know, his response is to first pretend that he doesn't realize, you know, he, go, he goes back to sleep, pretends that he doesn't realize they're there. And then in the morning he acts very grumpy towards them. And he, you know, um, Logalog comes up and is all excited. Hey, we're going to support you. We, you know, we're a democratic party. We didn't, you know, we, we ha hadn't decided democratically at first to support you, but we took a vote and we decided yes. You know, and um, and Matthias mocks their rules. He he says your silly rules, and um, and kind of looks down. You know, in in his words, at least I don't know if he meant it um, in his heart, but in his words, he looks down upon um, their democratic rules. And I just do not think that Logalog would have you know hung his head and apologized as much as he did to Matthias. I just did that just didn't feel realistic to me. And, um, and so there were just several moments like that where Matthias kept getting sterner and sterner with creatures. And that was part of his growth as a hero was to become firm and stern. And I just did not like that character growth in him. Um, that was almost the only way that he grew. I saw him changing throughout the book was him becoming sterner with the different creatures. And I just found it really unsatisfying. Yeah, I think you make a, a good point, Tiff. And that's that's probably one of the things I struggle with the most with Matthias's journey and why I don't rank it as high or I don't like it as much as some of the other aspects of the book. Like I think that his journey does seem inconsistent at times, but I really like the idea of fate in this book where I called it throughout our uh, review episodes, 
um, a soft magic of him like being destined to be Martin. And I even mentioned when him and Methuselah go into Martin's tomb, Methuselah sees Matthias as Martin, like he's standing there as Martin and he calls out to him um, in his dreams. And even Clooney has this, um, this dream, this prophecy that he's, that this conflict is going to end at the end of the day. And that kind of happens at the very end of the book. So I really like this idea of like this soft magic of fate. That's kind of driving uh, the change in, matthias that's driving the hero quest forward that um you know it's fate that warbeak is the one that gets shot with the arrow and that leads him into king bull sparrow's core and just the the coincidences that happen throughout this book to me seems like that soft magic of fate i will say that probably has to do with my absolute love for lord of the rings and that being uh kind of like alubitar being the the guiding hand in a lot of things that happen within lord of the rings so i'm probably projecting a little bit of that into this story um, but in my mind, that's something that kind of plays out that I really do like about it. I think that's one of the the strongest themes from what I see is this idea of this destiny, this fate, and how all the creatures kind of fit into that. William, you've got some thoughts on chosen good versus uh, chosen evil. Yeah, and the the whole time y'all have been talking, I've been trying to trying to wrestle my theory together with all of your claims. So let me, let me lay this all out there and then y'all can, y'all can fight me on it. Um, as I was reading this, I, I kind of realized that I was putting all of these characters in my head into one of four categories, uh, kind of the dungeons and dragons, like lawful, good, lawful evil, like one of those things. But uh, it, in my mind, there were four different categories of characters in here. There were characters that were destined to be good. No matter what happened in the story, they were going to do great things and they were destined for greatness. And okay, Matthias, um, there were naturally evil characters, characters that were born and they were going to kill everything that they could. And they were going to do evil and spread death as Medeus. Uh, and then there were chosen good and chosen evil characters, characters that reached some point in the conflict and they they made an active decision to get involved to help people or to get involved and damage people. Uh, on the chosen good side, we've got Warbeak. Uh, on the chosen good side, we've got Jess Squirrel. I found myself enjoying those characters a lot more than I did Matthias because it uh, kind of like what Tiffany was saying, I feel like Jakes was having a hard time keeping Matthias interesting the whole time when you've got a character that's destined to slay the dragon. Um, there, there's only so many oversized floppy shoes you can put them in. Um, and, and, but you, you know, they're going to still walk the path and get to slay the dragon eventually. Um, but Jess Squirrel is climbing up the side of the Abbey, and we don't know if she's going to make it to the top and get the sword or not. Uh, the, their sparrows attacking her. She's kind of an expendable character. Hate to say it, um, but but we don't know what's going to happen to her. Um, we we've seen characters get decimated in the story at that point. I think it makes it really interesting seeing them grapple with the stakes here. She's got her child with her, and she's going to stay here and defend the Abbey you go Jess squirrel here we are um and then on the other side of the coin i think clooney's really interesting because he's chosen evil um at any point he could stop and withdraw this attack from the redwall abbey people are advising him to do that 
I think there's one or two points in the book where he like somewhat considers it like, yeah, maybe I could just walk away from this one. No, I'm going to go back in and do it. And just seeing him making those decisions over and over again, as opposed to Asmodeus, who's just out here killing. Um, I, I thought that was all very interesting, seeing Jake's balancing all four of those different ideas and letting all of them come into conflict with each other at some point. Um, we we had destined good versus destined evil down in down in the tunnels uh, in the rock quarry and destined good overcame destined evil. Uh, but we also saw we also saw Jess Squirrel like squaring off against Clooney or I guess more directly Constance squaring off against Clooney a few times uh, and, and trying to trying to rationalize how that was going to end and trying to guess how that was going to end. And we saw. We saw Clooney going up against Matthias and knowing he's not going to beat this thing and being terrified of that the entire time. I don't know. I, I just feel like there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so I'm going to shut up now. I I think you're totally right, William. And for the record, I just I do want to say, I think Matthias is one of the most boring protagonists of this whole series. <laughs> I really... I'm not a huge <laughs> fan of Matthias. Um, it is the secondary characters that I come to this book for, like Basil Staghair and Jess Squirrel and Silent Sam and Warbeak. I think these are the spice that this book really needs uh, because I do think that Matthias is just a terribly boring and oftentimes overbearing character. <laughs> I, I feel like I need a for the record too, because I I'm, I know I sounded super negative, but um, I am completely on the same page as Colin, where I love a bit of fate, a bit of destiny. Like I love, I mean, it makes it so clean, right? You know, if if we knew in life what our fate was, and we could confidently go towards that, it would make life so much easier. And and a lot of my love, you know, whereas Colin, you said yours comes from Lord of the Rings. Mine definitely, I, I love Lord of the Rings too, but mine definitely comes from Harry Potter and that chosen one. Um, you know, and I, and I mean, goodness, uh, Harry Potter fought a snake with a sword too. You know, it's, there's a lot of commonalities there. And so um, I absolutely uh, love the aspect of fate. Um, I just, yeah, you know, just found Matthias boring. <laughs> No, I think I think that's a fair criticism. And if we're all going on the record on things, I just want to go on the record and say that Basil Stag here is the best character in this book. So, you know, you can fight me on it if you want. Uh, so I think Silent Sam will fight you to the death with his sticky paws. Silent, yeah, <laughs> yes. As to Trevor, Trevor's point, I think a lot of the secondary characters is what makes this book so special. And and we mentioned in our second episode that the team up between Jess and Basil Stag here just had us so hyped when they go to get the standard from Clooney. And I think that really is just a great testament to how the secondary characters are kind of the stars of the show, like the Abbey and being inhabited by these other Mossflower uh, creatures, I think is the is the strongest part of Jake's writing. And I, I'm excited to get to more of that in subsequent books. Um, and I think that that's going to lead a lot of our conversations going forward um, in other books, because I think Jake's kind of gets that as well. Like, I think he kind of sees that in his storytelling that the inhabitants of this world is better than just the one standout character. Um, it also just might be that Matthias is just kind of a trope. Like, he's the chosen hero. He's uh, on the hero's quest. We know that he's going to, you know, 
complete the quest. And we've heard the stories a lot. And so maybe that's why it just doesn't seem as interesting to us. Um, yeah, that that's really all the thoughts I have regarding that. Can we, can we all agree that Constance has the coolest kill in the entire book with uh, the ballista and cheese thief? I loved it. It was so good. The, the setup and the anticipation. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. It it is a cool kill, but I know that William has some thoughts on another, um, another brutal death, many multiple brutal deaths in one fell accident. Let's say the uh, the tunnel. No, I'm talking about a cornflower. Cornflowers war oh crimes. Oh my gosh! Okay, we're we're busting this open now. Let's do it. Yeah, let's let's jump into it. Um... While we're talking about uh, characters that are destined for a certain fate, um, I just need to get this off my chest and uh, kind of clap back at uh, some of the things that were said in the first three th- three episodes here. I <laughs> loathe the character of Cornflower. I think she almost takes this entire story and forces it to fail the Bechdel test. Um, if you don't know what that is, <laughs> go ahead and look that up. Um, I know there are other female <laughs> characters. I know they have conversations, but Cornflower is so bad. I think she undermined all of that. We have a character whose only purpose in the story is to work in the kitchen and serve everyone else food. Uh, we have a character who is literally gifted away at the end of the story as a prize to the hero. And <laughs> yes. the moment of ownership that she could have gotten on the wall when she is bringing delicious vegetable soup up to everybody that's been working the night shift and she sees the siege tower and she dumps <laughs> the vegetable soup all over the siege tower and they light it on fire and they burn them alive on the siege tower which is such a cool kill. Jake's actively chose to take ownership of that kill away from her and make it be an accident. Like, I think she literally trips and falls and spills the vegetable stew all over the siege tower <laughs> so that other people can light it on fire. And I was so mad. Just don't make her trip and fall. Let her see the siege tower and throw this vegetable soup on there. As in, I can be cool too. Watch me burn this thing to the ground. It was right there, Jakes. You had a shot at redemption and you chose not to take it. And I'm so mad, but I'm going to get off this pedestal and let you all discuss it for a little bit. But you can, you can I, feel I, my resentment. I, I am I am step, step for step with you. Like, so in agreement. Her, <laughs> like, for how amazing so many of the other female characters are, you know, I, oh my gosh, I was a little girl, you know, growing up reading this book and I wanted to see myself in all the strong characters, you know, and so I was super sensitive and I mean, I'm still sensitive to that, heck, and um, oh my gosh, yeah, to to have such an amazing character like Constance and Jess um, that are such strong female characters and then just miss the mark with, with Cornflower, I just agree, it's... Um, it's definitely frustrating. Yeah, I, I, I'm totally with you, William. I will say that this is one of my uh, favorite funniest moments in the book, simply because we see Constance being, or, or, sorry, Cornflower being like, "Oops, sorry, I guess that kind of happened that she got this 
quintuple kill with the siege tower on accident. <laughs> but then we get the <laughs> we get the perspective from Clooney and he's witnessing like Armageddon happen within the siege tower. Like he's seeing rats pour out, they're burning to death, and he's he's like shell shook for the next ep- uh the next chapter from that. Um I it is very funny. Like I did think that this was a funny part that Jake's kind of puts in and um but uh, to your to your point I, I think Cornflower and Colin DeVole are the most insufferable characters in this. Uh, so, I mean, I think Cornflower is worse than, worse than Colin DeVole because you know, I share the same name with Colin, but um, that's really the only difference. <laughs> my my on-the-record moment, then. Um, Jake's gets so much better at this. We don't really see another Cornflower character moving forward, so I like I can mentally give him a pass. It'll it'll be fine. We'll all move on. Um, and also, like there is a time and a place for characters that like aren't the warrior type, right? Like everybody doesn't have to be some some awesome butt kicker running around on the battlefield throwing their stuff around but it's just so egregiously misogynistic yeah yeah i i totally agree while we're talking about death how many do you know do you guys know how many uh are like confirmed deaths and kills there are in this book i'm so excited to hear these numbers i counted them yeah, what's let's do the let's do the I don't actually know how to do over, over under. I, I said that in the the episode, but let's just do a guess. Throw out your guess out there for I I accidentally saw what the final count was, so I can't guess. But you guys should throw out your guesses. Okay, should we do named deaths or total deaths? I've got both figures, so if you want to throw out a number of like these are the confirmed like we have specific reference to the body and then on top of that like the the insinuated death count of this book um go ahead and and throw out both numbers i want to guess that there were maybe 40 named deaths and then i don't know 200 of the of like implied is that a lot (laughs) I was just going to go 12 named deaths, which might be a little under, but we're playing prices right rules, right? Um, 12, 12 named deaths and maybe like 80, 80 unnamed? The real numbers are 39 confirmed deaths in the book. Oh my God. I did 39. not see the numbers. I was right on the mark. <laughs> you were the 39 actual bodies are explicitly like counted in the narrative and then the implied numbers and and the way that i i gauged implied numbers is you know he might say a few lane slain on the road or you know uh a, a a couple and and so a few i would count as five a couple i would count as two but my estimate of of the implied deaths for this book between 550 and 570 dead oh my gosh that's so, an extermination so is it was it was it your guys understanding that um 
all of the all of Clooney's horde died in the end. Is that right? Because they mentioned at one point- 100% of them were killed. Okay. Because yeah. anyone who tried to escape were taken um, by the cat and the owl. That was my understanding. Correct. Correct. Yep. yep. So literal yeah, extermination of an entire horde. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely yeah, it's, genocide. It's pretty- it's pretty brutal. I think it's I, I I'm really conflicted on this. You guys are our parents as well, so you can kind of give me your perspective on it. But does that is that alarming to have in a kid's book, or am I just holding my pearls too much? With this? When I read it as a middle schooler, it made me feel so badass. I loved it. I felt so nice, cool. Okay. I, I would definitely let my middle schooler read it for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I I think that that's where I want to lean, but then the new parent part of me is like, I don't know. <laughs> like, would I think there's so many there's so many action based shows that try to skirt along um, enemy deaths, like Power Rangers. These are the putty guys that you're fighting. They're not real people. They're just clay that you're blowing up and stabbing and shooting. Um, or uh, what else does it? Uh, I don't know. It, it, pick your kid's show, and they they find all these weird, clever ways to not "quote unquote" kill people. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles—they're all robots that they're fighting or whatever, uh, with, with little brains inside. So to have something that ha- that just takes a direct approach here is actually mildly refreshing to me, in a dark way. I was surprised by how violent these books were, and I know that as a kid, like. I was all about it because we don't see death in other kinds of media. You know, to your point, William, I remember Spider-Man cartoons where Spider-Man was literally not allowed to throw a punch. And so, so many of those cartoons are him resolving a conflict by just jumping around or hitting things with webs or convincing the villain to kind of defeat himself, which is creative in a sense, but it's also like, I don't know. I came here to see people get punched in the face. And I feel like this was one of those first bits of media that was given to me where it was like, that dude got cut in half. I thought it was really cool. The story that you told about Jake's um, starting this, the, first telling the story is to blind kids out loud because I didn't realize that. Um, But what I did read about uh, Jake's was when he was growing up. um, So he was born in the thirties, I want to say in Liverpool. And so um, Liverpool in his youth was actually literally being bombed by Hitler. Um, And so he said that he definitely drew from that, Um, When writing these books, um, you know, the sense of danger and what it felt like to be attacked upon. He he lived that as a kid. And so, um, you know, when he as a kid had to live through literal bombing and here we are, you know, only (laughs) in Spider-Man can't can't hold a punch. I I definitely think we need some middle ground. And and I think Jake's found it for sure. It it reads to me like kind of is somewhere in between PG and PG 13. And, and I feel like that was just what I, I needed. It's, it's cognizant of the death in a way that makes it tragic. 
and yet does not short sell the moments of heroism where there's kind of like a justice to like meeting out the violence that the the evil has wrought i i don't know how quite to explain that concept except that it always felt earned to me in in a way that i don't know you know other media necessarily feels about violence yeah i i i don't i don't really have much more to contribute to that i think you're totally right um what do you guys say we move over to our um hero and villain to your list let's do it yeah let's okay, go great. cool so um william do you want to do a breakdown of what this list is like how what the scaling is um and why we're only focusing on um kind of the central heroes and villains for the book as a whole sure let's do this um so what i have developed for the group is just a 10 point scale um, we're going to try to use this scale for all of the heroes and all of the villains to get a, uh, rambling a little bit here, uh, telling y'all some of my secrets here. Uh, at the end of this, I'm sort of kind of planning to assemble a big book of Redwall with some of our hot takes, some of our uh, insights into the different books um, and a bibliography at the end with book rankings, hero rankings, villain rankings, etc. So what this scale is, it's a 10 point scale that we plan to use through this whole adventure, um, mapping out who our favorite heroes are, who our favorite villains are on the hero side of things. Um, how we're ranking this, if we give somebody a zero, that means that that hero is entirely forgettable. Um, a year down the road from this, when we're talking about the books again, we might forget to mention them anytime that the, the book series gets brought up. Um, in the middle ground, if we give somebody a five, that means they're fine. We'd read another book about them. They can show up again in the future, but you're not actively looking for more of that character. And then if we give somebody a 10, that means they're an absolute icon. They are one of the cornerstones of this series. We love them so much. Um, give me, give me 20 more books based on this character. We think they're the cat's pajamas. Do cats wear pajamas in this, uh, in this, in this first book? I don't know. The scaling's a little off, but anyway. In Mossflower, they do. <laughs> um, and then villains, it's effectively the same ranking system. Um, it's, it's zero means entirely forgettable. Five means they're fine. Uh, they could show up as a big bad in another book and we'd be fine with it. Or 10 means absolute icon. They will sing stories of this villainry for uh, for generations to come. So all of us have gone through. We've given these heroes and these villains a ranking on the scale. We kept it to just main heroes and main villains because like we were saying a second ago, if we strayed off into side characters, there would be way too many people to talk about. Um, but for this first book, uh, what we've got for our primary hero is just Matthias. We kept it with him since he's kind of the focal point here. And then with the villains, I want us to talk about Clooney the Scourge, Clooney the Scourge and I want us to talk about Asmodeus a little bit, uh, Asmodeus Poison Teeth, uh, if we're going to use his full proper title. Um, because I think it's interesting to weigh Clooney and Asmodeus against each other. They're very different brands of evil that are treated very differently by the story. And I was interested to hear what worked and didn't work for us. 
So all that aside, uh, let's start with the hero since there's just one of them and we can kind of, we've already kind of started on Matthias a bit, I feel like. Yeah, so let's just go down the list. Uh, we'll, let's start with Trevor. And um, if you would give your what your ranking is and then just a quick justification for that, uh, and then we can move on. So I think that Matthias is a 10. And I say this knowing this is going to be the most controversial take we'll have because he's my least favorite hero in the entire series. And yet when we think about icons, when we think about who represents the most memorable kind of heroic character in the series, I think he lays the groundwork. I think he really is the one that we remember most ardently because he's the one who kicked off the entire series. That's my only justification for why I think Matthias is a 10. He is the archetype upon which virtually anything else is tested. I want to, uh, uh, so I gave him a seven. Um, I think there are two big things holding his character back. One we've talked about already with the inconsistency. Um, in the first scene, he's got these flip-flops that are too big and it's causing him to be clumsy. And then magically, whenever something's happening, the flip-flops are fine. Um, we, we've got all of these stories about him being a young, naive mouse. And yet as soon as a battle breaks out, all of a sudden he is military tactician, four-star general, I know everything. Like it, It's just kind of very odd. But also to Trevor's point, and the reason I wanted to jump in here, I don't think he's such an icon for the rest of this series because I think a lot of his ownership of his own story gets stolen away from him. Uh, I think he ends up just being a proxy for Martin in so many ways. Totally. Um, yeah. Yep. I don't know. That, that That's just what I wanted to set up. So back to y'all. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll go in and jump in. I also ranked him as a seven, the same as you, William. And it's it's basically the same point that you make. I think that he is an icon. He's the most recognizable. I mean, he's the mouse on the cover of the book. I think that he holds a very important place in this first book, but so much of what I like about Matthias is Martin. It's not really Matthias. Um, and going on our scale with five being they're fine. I'd read another book about them, like kind of middle of the road. I don't really want to read another book about Matthias. I want to read a book about Martin. Well, and too so I think bad. <laughs> I know that he's in other books, but you get my point. Like his hero journey, the pacing of the hero journey is the one of my biggest criticisms of the first book. And so do I want to go on another hero journey with Matthias? Probably not. But I do want to learn more about Martin with also understanding that Matthias is the star of the show here. So that's why I put him at a seven. Um, I, I really struggle with this. Like I, I tossed and turned all night. Not really, but I, I really just like wrestled with this. I think I've changed my number once or twice, but I'm sticking with the seven. Yeah. For, uh, all the reasons you guys said, and my frustrations earlier, I gave him a six although, but I will say Trevor, I really appreciate your thought process with how, um, you know, Matthias set up this archetype. Um, that's actually why later on I'll say that I rated the book as a whole pretty highly, um, even though all the frustrations that we've talked about um, is because, you know, I met my favorite character, the Abbey. We set up this really incredible world. You know, we we set up this idea of destiny. Um, and so so the, the same reason I rated the book as a whole pretty highly. With villains, we have Clooney the Scourge. 
Um, Tiff, let's start with your rating rating first. 10 out of 10. Easy. I, I, he's so smart. I just think he's so smart. And I think that when he fails so much of his bad luck, um, you know, just like we talked about with, with cornflower, you know, quote unquote, accidentally, um, lighting the tower on fire, you know, wow, the siege tower is such a cool idea. They, they snuck out of the forest, you know, to climb over the top of the wall. They found the quietest area of the wall, um, you know, and just by accident, somebody sets it on fire. You know, I think that he's he's so smart. And really, if it weren't for Martin coming in um, and disturbing, you know, and it being in his nightmares and then on the other side of the coin, giving Matthias and the Abbey creatures all this confidence um, that it, this would have just been another, you know, win for Clooney. Yeah, I rated him as a 9 out of 10, very similar to you, Tiff. I, I think that he's one of the outstanding characters in this book, one of the most memorable. I really like Clooney. The only reason why I didn't give him a 10 out of 10 is I forgot how he dies. And it's <laughs> such an unmemorable quick death that <laughs> I just, I feel like I got to dock him a point. Like for him being such a clever, memorable character, his death is so sudden, so quick, and so unmemorable that I I had to dock my point. Sorry, Clooney. You know, kind of an aside, but you guys talked about how um, the three captains that were um, really talked about in the book, um, Clooney's captains, they ended up dying sort of out of hubris because they were trying to act like Clooney. They were trying to, you know, think that they were as good as Clooney, and that ended up being their downfall. And um, I would say that's true for so many of the evil characters that hubris mm. ended up being their downfall. Um, yeah. Asmodeus, you know, he he said out loud, oh, I can go as slow as I want because they're trapped. And then, you know, Matthias was able to find a little cubby hole that set him up for success. And um, Sila, that's how she died was, you know, thinking that she could be this cool double mm. agent, you know, when she got caught in her lies. And um and I think that was such a theme throughout the book of these evil creatures really dying from hubris. But Clooney was the exception, like the major exception to that rule. He got this huge battle scene that was almost like honorable, you know, where he got to go back yeah. and forth mm. and, you know, um, mm. and, and so it's so ironic because I agree. It is kind of forgettable. The the death. It's kind of ironic that it ends up being so forgettable, even though he did get this, you know, long drawn out death that the other year evil characters didn't really get. I think that's some of the power of Clooney's legend, right? In every instance I've read this book, I am constantly like, oh, that's that's how he goes. Um and I forget immediately after how Clooney actually dies. And I think that's because the rest of Clooney is so much fun and so iconic. I absolutely am with you, Tiff. Like I, he's a 10 out of 10 for me. Um, I absolutely love him as a villain. I think he's, again, the archetype from which we're going to see a lot of future villains. Um and he's he's devious, he's smart, and my favorite Clooney moments are the moments when he wakes up in a cold sweat being like, Am I am I gonna die? Nah. 
and he just commits <laughs> back to the siege. And I just absolutely love that villain mentality. All right. Now, here's where we get to gang up on William with his rating. Yeah, it, it's it's my turn to be thrown under the uh, thrown under the horse cart. Um, I only gave him a seven out of ten, and let me explain why before everybody starts starts coming at me here. Um, I gave him a seven out of ten because in one, like y'all said, his death was just oddly flat. Um, if, if you've got such a big villain, you want some big send off for them, and we just don't get anything. Um, but my bigger issue with him is that his motivation through this whole book just makes no sense to me. It's even presented in the beginning of the book as he doesn't know where he's going. He's just on this cart, and wherever it crashes, he's going to do evil things. And it's it's all at once. It kind of fits with his character um of of just destroying whatever's in front of him but also for a character that's portrayed as being so thoughtful and so sneaky and so conniving the fact that he's literally going to run into a brick wall and just be like i'm going to keep bashing my head against this until it works um it just it rubbed me the wrong way there are so many other things around here that he could have gone and attacked um, maybe it's the hubris sneaking in like Tiff was talking about. Maybe he just gets frustrated at a certain point. Like, no, these, these Abbey mice are not going to beat me. I'm going to get the better of them, but it's never quite presented that way to us. I don't, it, it just always felt a little bit weird. And I kept thinking multiple times, why doesn't he just go back to the beach? Why doesn't he just go back to one of the places he already conquered? what's so special about Redwall other than the stuff that we know that's special about Redwall. Like the context is just different. Yeah. I think it, it's kind of his um, maybe his overconfidence, his zealousness is, is the reason why he does that. Like even when he tours the Abbey for the first time to parlay with Mortimer, he's like, you know, dreaming about how the castles or the, he's going to make the Abbey into a castle for his own. Uh, make it his own and make it into a ca- castle or fortress. So uh, I think that it, it, that we get some parts of him that kind of show that like he, that's why he keeps throwing himself at this Abbey is because he doesn't, it, it's his zealousness. Like he just, it's um, zealousness a word. I don't even know. Zeal. Sure. It's cool. We'll figure it out in the, the post edit, but <laughs> zealousness means the quality of being very enthusiastic and eager. Uh, yeah, I, 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 that's one of the things that I like about Clooney is that he's both really clever, but then also really stubborn. Like he does keep throwing himself at this problem and, um, he, he actively chooses to be the bad guy that he is. Um, and I think that he's a perfect foil for Matthias. I think that they paired together are really interesting. Um, and we get that a little bit with Matthias, like I mentioned in our first episode, where Clooney scares everyone in the Abbey when he's doing the parlay, but then Matthias doesn't jump. Like he's not fooled by it at all. I think that that's a really clever dynamic that helps to elevate Matthias, but it's just really because Clooney's cool. All right. Should we jump over to Asmodeus? Yeah, let's do it. Um, Tiff, do you want to start with Asmodeus? Yeah. Um, so, okay. So I gave Asmodeus a six. Um, I think for me, 
Okay, yeah. So I gave Asmodeus a six, and I think it's basically just exactly what William was saying earlier. I don't understand his motivation. I also think, you know, his death was really stupid that he just had this... And, and not very believable to me, the fact that Matthias, you know, Asmodeus's death wasn't really even described very well. It basically just Matthias went into a rage um, and then suddenly he was dead. Um, and and so I just found Asmodeus pretty unsatisfying. Yeah, I agree. I also put him as a seven uh, for basically the same reasons, Tiff. I felt like he didn't play as big of a part in the story. Um, he's just kind of circulating like the, the dragon that's in the cave kind of trope where he poses a threat, but he's not a direct conflict um, until Ma- uh, Matthias goes to get the sword. Um, I think that he's he's cool, like dragons are cool, but I think he kind of played his part. I'm not really... Um, I don't really want to revisit Asmodeus. I know that there's other villains that are kind of like him, um, but I have basically the same thoughts that you do. I might be the only person who really likes Asmodeus as a villain. I rated him an eight out of 10. I I don't know what it is. I just like a, a big, mean, scary snake. And I think that his presence in this book is the terror in the background and so while everything's kind of happening, there's always the threat of Asmodeus, who is like unknowable. And he's just evil. And he is like this, I don't know, this like scary presence in the background. And for that, I, I gave him an 8 out of 10. I just enjoy the idea of there being some other menace out there that really doesn't have any rhyme or reason. It just exists and then tries to eat Matthias and gets his head lopped off. I really enjoy the strike for Redwall moment. It is a defining moment for the book for me. And for me, I I gave him a five. Um, which is the lowest rating of the group, but strangely, I, I think I agree with Trevor the most. Um, I I love the two villain structure that Redwall sets up. Um, I love the idea that Matthias had to get through this foil in order to face Clooney, in order to prove himself and like become the hero and go after Clooney after all. Um, I also kind of like the way that they set it up in the cave that Tiff just uh, said she didn't like. I like the cutaway. Um, we don't we don't get to see Matthias go Super Saiyan mode. They're gonna hold that for us just a little bit until he gets to see Clooney, and then we'll get a big full battle. Uh, I like this this moment of Matthias gets enraged, and then he just walks out of the cave, and the, the massive snake is just dead behind him. Like he he has become something new now. Um, he's evolved or I don't know. I'm using Dragon Ball Z terminology here and Pokemon <laughs> terminology, whatever. <laughs> We're mixing our tropes. Um, my biggest problem with Asmodeus though, was just how underutilized he was. Um, it, it felt like the, the people at Redwall weren't aware of him. So they never talked about him. You only really got him in these little glimpses 
in the in the periphery of the story when some random character wandered off in the wrong direction and got got by him or when the sparrows were talking about decades ago when they caught a single glimpse of him and he stole the sword um i think there was a lot of legend that could have been built built up here and i think asmodeus and this dragon in the keep guarding the treasure concept is a really cool one i just wish we had gotten so much more of it because as it was it kind of hit like a flash in the pan for me and it just kind of functioned like a tool to get us to the bigger battle with Clooney you know Trevor I think you convinced me to bump up my rating I I I do think that the book would have been very different with about without Asmodeus in the background lurking with that sense of unknown in the background um, I think it def- definitely added a really cool, fantastical, um, mysterious aspect to it. So I'll, I'll bump him up to a seven. All right. You can join me on that. That's the, all the I seven. ask for. Okay. At okay. least a seven. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Well, we're going to jump into our final review of Redwall. So how this is going to work is we're going to give an overall rating on the same scale of one to 10, one being uh it's it's bad (laughs) we don't like it actually i guess that's zero it's bad and then 10 being absolute icon this is a a 10 out of 10 book um we're gonna go this go through this pretty quickly because we're we're running out of time um so we'll go ahead and start with with tiff what are what is your rating for redwall and uh why did you rate it that yeah i rated it an eight and it's for all the reasons we already talked about um I would have given it a 10 if um, just for, you know, the fact that it really set up this amazing series. Um, It did such a good job out of the gate, um, you know, among the 22 books. But those first author, uh, first time author problems, you know, the inconsistencies, um, especially of scale, I just I knocked it a couple of points. um, So I give it an eight. Um, I went with a seven. Uh, same reasons Tiff was talking about. I I wish the consistency was there. I wish the hero's journey was a little bit more pronounced. But more so, I'm giving it a seven just because I know what lies ahead and I know how much better this is about to get. And I can't rank it any higher because then that's gonna that's gonna handcuff me against some of these upcoming books. Um, I think we do get some really cool, grandiose set pieces that stick with us for life. Obviously, we all came back to do this podcast, um, at least in part because of this first book. Um, And I think it does its job of sparking the imagination really well. I think as a kid, when you pick this book up, you you are off to the races. You are imagining mice fighting in the woods and you are imagining the the maybe not the nut brown ale. Um, you probably don't know what that is as a kid, but you know, all the other foods, um, you're, you're imagining the delicious flavors. Um, and yeah, I, I think it does its job very admirably, but I know there's better things coming. Yeah, very well put. Um, I rated it as a six. Um, this is a very controversial rating uh, it, it, within my heart. There's so much that I really love about Redwall. And um on Goodreads, I rated it a five out of five the first time I read it. But this reread just revealed a lot of the things that I didn't like about the book, specifically the scale, the first time problems that uh, that William, you you had mentioned. And I, I know that the series gets better from here. Um, 
And so because of that, I rated it as a six, just kind of in the middle of the road to compare other books against it. I may revise this later on. I may bump it up in kind of the scale of other Redwall books. But for now, I'm just keeping at that six because that's that feels the most comfortable. I have two ratings for this book because I think my my feelings up about it are kind of complex. Basically, in comparison to a lot of other books that I read, I would probably put this at a 10 out of 10 um, because I have so much love and enjoyment for this book, even though I know it is very flawed and I do not think it is a perfect book. Uh, it's perfect in my heart. It is the book that I continue to come back to when I think about Redwall and the series, even if it's not my favorite one in the series. When I talk about my my top 10 favorite books of all time, it's a Redwall book in there somewhere. And so it kind of defaults to Redwall, which I think is symbolic of my love for the whole series. That being said, I think that Redwall as a Redwall book is probably only a six out of 10 for me. There's a lot of stuff I love in it, but I also think that its flaws are very apparent and now that I've read this book three times, I, I feel really safe in saying that there's so much good in here, but it is saddled with a whole bunch of confusion, a whole bunch that I think is just not really all that memorable or all that interesting. And I think that of all of the Redwall books that I've read, this is probably the worst in the entire series. I know, Dang. I said it. Wow. Very hot take. Well, uh, go in and email me for Trevor's P.O. Box if you want to mail him tomatoes. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's a controversial take. Well, that that wraps up um, episode four, our Redwall <laughs> review. Guys, this is just the end of season one, but we have so much more Redwall to cover in season two and beyond. So we also... Um, Sorry. We also have so much more to say. Like I I mean there's so many different aspects of the books that we could go down. Um and so many things that I know I've held back cuz I want to be able to have discussion stuff on in future um you know for future books. Yes, definitely. This won't be the end of our discussion about Redwall, this book one, um, but uh, this is the end of season one. Uh, if you want to join in the conversation, please uh, follow us on Instagram and threads at Books and Badgers. That's with an N in the middle, Books and Badgers. Uh, and we want you to join in the in the discussion. You can DM us. You can send us an email at uh, booksandbadgers at gmail.com. Again, we want to engage in this dialogue. We want to be able to build a community around Redwall. So please, please follow us. Please join us there. Um, if you love our voices, which a lot of people do, uh, you can find Trevor on Slay House Presents. He's got lots of really cool things going on there. Great interviews upcoming. Uh, and you can also find William Sterling on Killer Mediums. Uh, William, I, I heard something about you having a book coming out too, right? Yeah, September 22nd. I've got a I've got a murder puppets horror book coming out called String Them Up. It is going to be the death of me. I hope I make it to September 20 September 22nd. 
<laughs> yeah, I saw that cover and it gave me chills, man. I'm going to be honest. It's, uh, <laughs> it's spooky. I'm, I'm probably the only person in here who has actually read a good portion of this book. And uh, I mean, other than William, of course, it's a whole heck of a lot of fun. I really like this book and I'm so excited for it to come out on September 22nd. Thank yeah, you, you, you got to check that out if horror is your thing. Uh, and then last but not least, you can ch check out uh, Tiff's amazing work at Magical Moments of Many Monsters on Instagram. That's all one word, Magical Moments of Many Monsters. Uh, I, I saw that you have another post on there, Tiff. So that's that's exciting. The, the ball's rolling. No longer just one post. Uh, we're, get, we're getting more artwork, which yeah. is so exciting. Now that I'm uh, finally getting past some of these health issues, I see some more posts coming in the future. Awesome. That's really great. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Again, that wraps up season one. Come back here for season two. We're going to be talking about Moss Flower and a little spoiler for what's ahead. Some of, us, some of us have started on Moss Flower and oh boy, there's lots to say about it. We're very excited. Join in the conversation with us and we'll see you in season two. Thanks all. Ooh.